you for those announcements, Roger. Uh, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. It's ages 4 through grade 4. You get like an Easter egg hunt or something awesome. Uh, the rest of you are stuck with me, so uh, lots to look forward to. There we go. Thank you for someone acting excited about that. That was great. And we're going to have a men's bonfire. Uh, we're, we're acting in faith on May 7th that it will be warm enough and not too snowy by then. And uh, we'll, we'll, we're happy to have another time to connect together as men, so just uh, be aware of that. Oh, it's a good Sunday. Um, it's exciting to be here on, on Easter. Uh, my wife Karen mentioned to me as we're getting ready this morning that this is the most normal Easter since uh, I've been pastor here. And yes, Easter 2020 was very abnormal. I still remember, uh, you know, we just weren't able to be together at all. And then last year we had this slice of time where we could connect at Easter, uh, even though we had some restrictions and spacing that needed to happen. And it was right after that that we, we went down into another lockdown. And so there was much to be grateful for, not the least of which is being able to, to be together to celebrate Easter. And if you are visiting with us, I want to make sure to extend my welcome to you. We're really glad that you're choosing to connect with us here. And, and we're excited about what God has in store for all of us as we continue to worship and to learn together from his word, which is what we are going to do now. I have to admit that social media has changed the way that I understand the word reaction. It means something very different to me now, because now when you go to Facebook or Instagram, and you post something, I want to know how many people reacted to my post. And then you see something you really like, oh, how should I react to this? I mean, it's kind of funny. Is it laughing face funny, or is it only a thumbs up funny? I need to, I need to figure this out, because now emojis have become one of these primary ways that we express ourselves. Every once in a while on Facebook, they'll come across something where it says, uh, share your top four or five emojis that you use most often. No lying. So if you want to know what my experience of the past few years has been, here are my top three emojis. Thumbs up, which I like to do because I, I don't like texting, so this says a lot. Followed very closely by the face palm and the shoulder shrug. <laughs> right, so how is, that? How is pastoring a church during a pandemic gone? A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and then here we, here we have uh, a lot of our reaction over the past few years. We've talked a lot about this very familiar and incredible story of the resurrection of Jesus, and we're focusing on that. And what I want us to look for together, in particular, are the different reactions that we see from the followers of Jesus. And their reactions, their responses to what they see and experience will often still mirror our own all these many years later. So I invite you to, to take out your Bibles or your Bible app, whatever you have with you. Uh, we're going to turn to Luke 24. And we're going to look at Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. I will read for you the first 12 verses. And again, I would invite you to pay a special attention to the reactions of the followers of Jesus in this familiar story. Let's read the word of the Lord together. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. 
Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who went with them, who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I'm going to invite you to join with me in prayer one more time. Lord Jesus, Today we celebrate that you are alive. That means so much to us. And God, as we come to this familiar story, I pray that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your Son and eyes to see the resurrected and living Christ. God, that we too would know how we react to this story and know what you desire from us in response to it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this is a wonderful story. We had this dramatic reading from John's account, very, very similar to what we read in the Gospel of Luke. And as our story picks up, Jesus has now been dead for almost two days. He was put to death on Friday, and then Saturday, which would have been the Sabbath, the final day of the week, had come and gone. And now it is the first day of the week. It is now Sunday morning, and now the work can be done. So as, as this uh, sun is rising on Sunday morning, a group of women go to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body with spices. Now Luke identifies some of the women in verse 10. We have Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. And they were likely just picked out of what would have been a greater group of other women followers. Now Mary Magdalene has the honor of being the only one that is specifically talked about or named in all four of the Gospels. She was certainly the first one to discover that Jesus was alive. But as we've noted, especially during this this Passion Week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he had a large number of followers, many of which were women. There was a large group of women that were there at the triumphal entry shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Same group of women were following Jesus who was carrying his cross to the place of the skull and they were lamenting and grieving that loss along the way. And now some of those very same women who have seen the high and the low are now coming to the tomb of Jesus. And they're going early in the morning, right before daybreak, which is where we have our traditional Easter sunrise services, which I think sounds like a great idea right up until the moment where I realize how early I need to get up in the morning. But maybe they couldn't sleep very well. Whatever it was, they were right there at the crack of dawn. The spices that they brought were used for embalming, an act that would have been one of honor and reverence. Typically, this would have been done to the body before it was laid to rest, but these women likely didn't have access to the body of Jesus at the time of his death and burial. So they are going, and they're going to try to see if they will finally be able to give their respects to this man that they loved so much one final time. Now, in Mark's gospel, as they're going towards the tomb, they talk out loud of this problem that faces them because the tomb has been sealed by an incredibly large and immovable stone. And so they talk out loud in Mark's gospel saying, how are we going to roll the stone away? They have the spices. They know that they would like to anoint the body of Christ, but they do not know how they will have access to it. The stone was was typical of those days. It was there to seal the tomb from any wild animals, to seal the tomb from grave robbers, and in particular in the case of Jesus, to seal the tomb from disciples, that the authorities were worried his followers would want to go steal the body and then make a false proclamation that he had risen from the dead. 
And so Matthew, in his account, also adds the detail that not only was the tomb sealed, but it was guarded by the temple guards to prevent this from happening. But despite all of these obstacles, this group of women who loved Jesus so went to the tomb, and when they arrived, they found that the problem of the stone had already been taken care of. No one less than God himself had rolled the stone away. And as they sit there in shock and in awe, the tomb was empty. Jesus was not there. And we encounter our first reaction in this story because the women were perplexed. They were greatly confused. None of this made sense. And for these first witnesses, confusion came from a a lack of information. They didn't have the whole picture. They did not yet understand the whole story. They didn't know what happened until the angels appeared to them. And so I can imagine all these questions coming through their mind as they see that the tomb of Jesus has been disturbed. Could it have been grave robbers that came and rolled that stone away? Was it the disciples? Did they act without us knowing and come back for the body of Jesus? Was it the authorities that wanted to move his body somewhere else because of all the unrest that this man had caused up to that point? They were confused. And for some, even today, a lack of information can still lead to confusion about the resurrected Christ. The response or reaction of confusion. Truth be told, church, theology is confusing enough. Theology meaning that what we understand, how we try to grasp who God is. We have this impossible task of of, of trying to, in our own human minds, understand this unknowable supernatural being who is God. And it can lead to some impossible situations. I just had a conversation last week right in the church foyer with a young man. He comes up to me and says, Pastor Andrew, uh, could God make a mountain so big that he himself could not move it? And I responded with with the wisdom and gravitas that you're accustomed to me as pastor giving. And I said, I don't know. (laughs) And I turned around and said, well, could God cook a burrito so hot that even he himself could not eat it? high-quality conversation, right? It's impossible. We don't understand. Ah, it makes my mind hurt. Conceiving of who God is is difficult. It sometimes is impossible. And the truth is that we need to know Scripture in order to know the truth about God, specifically the truth about Jesus. Because if we are unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, we will have much confusion about who Jesus was and what he accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. What do you mean Jesus was fully God and fully man? That doesn't make sense. What do you mean that he was perfect and sinless? I have never seen anybody who would fit that mold. What do you mean that Jesus died in place of you and me? Why did I need a substitute? What do you mean that Jesus was dead and then somehow came back to life? Yeah, of course it would be confusing without the knowledge that the Bible gives us. Now, unfortunately, biblical literacy is at an all-time low. I'm going to share a few stats here, and they're going to be framed in uh, surveys taken in in the States. We don't have very many Canadian stats, but all of these Bible literacy statistics, you can take what is true about the U.S. and then just drop it down a notch, and that's where we would sit as Canadians. Biblical literacy is is, is rampant outside of the church. Statista.com ran a survey, and they concluded it by saying this. A survey from 2021 found that 11% of Americans read the Bible daily, which is probably higher than I thought. Trends in reading habits over four years show that the majority of Americans never read the Bible, vast majority. However, in 2021, this number dropped to 29% of respondents. What was interesting is that they found that more people read their Bible during the pandemic. So maybe that's one more silver lining. But largely, 
people are not reading the Bible. They are not as familiar with the stories. And so when the church would make a claim about Jesus, it's easy to be confused. Unfortunately, though, biblical illiteracy is not just for those outside the church. It's also becoming increasingly prevalent in the church. And um, author Dave Jenkins looks at a few studies and comes to this conclusion. In their recent 2021 survey, uh, LifeWay Research found that 11% of American evangelicals have read all of Scripture from beginning to end. 9% have read uh, all of Scripture more than once. 10% have read none at all. 13% only a few sentences. 12% almost all of it. 15% at least half of it. And 30% several passages or stories. 30% of churchgoers have read several passages or stories. The same study noted that 32% read the Bible every day. 27 read it every a few times a week, 12% read it once a week, 11% read it a few times a month, 5% once a month, and 12% rarely read it at all. So church, if, if the only way to combat confusion is to go to Scripture, then we must make sure that we are people of the book, that we go into Scripture. And Sunday morning is a great place to start. One of my goals here as pastor is to ensure that we read Scripture together and that we dig deeper into the Word of God. And my hope is that as we study it together, you can learn something new every week and, and be encouraged or challenged to apply that truth in a, in a different way. But, but this can never be all. This can never be all the time that you crack open the Word to understand God is to look at how He has chosen to reveal His nature. And that is to be in the Word of God uh, on your own and as, as often as possible to be in the Word of God with your small groups and with your discipleship groups, and to make sure that we go to the Word to clear up that confusion. Now, in our resurrection story, the two angels appear to the women and clear up any confusion they have with a message of hope. In Luke, he doesn't call them angels. He says two men in dazzling white. But we know from that description and from the other gospel accounts that these were angels indeed. And then these women have this incomplete information and the angels fill in the gaps. They say, it was a really beautiful verse. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And now those female disciples know of all the possible options of what could have happened to Jesus, and whether it be wild animals or grave robbers or disciples or authorities or whatever the case may be, this was the best possible option. The angels then remind the women of what Jesus had predicted about his own death and resurrection, something that they hadn't fully understood at the time. We've talked about this numerous times, that the disciples didn't make complete sense of what Jesus was foretelling until after the fact. And this is one thing. And then the angels draw the women back to what Jesus said, all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 21 and 22. And Jesus, speaking to his disciples, strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was not a surprise. This was God's plan all along. And in that reminder that the angels give to the disciples, they then truly understand and they remember. And they don't just remember, but they believe. They trust that this is truly what has happened to Jesus. They trust that this is exactly what God is accomplishing in this moment. And this now, the angels reminding the women of the, of the words of Jesus from before, starts a trend after the resurrection. 
of the disciples of Jesus being reminded of what he said and what the scripture said even before him so that they would fully understand. The word of God was used to clear up any confusion. And that is available to all of us here today. Now, having seen the empty tomb and the message from the angels, the women do believe, and they are excited. And so they rush to tell the eleven, no longer twelve, because Judas had betrayed Jesus and taken his own life. They rush to tell the eleven and the other gathered disciples in the area that, that, that Jesus is alive. And, and what a message they have. What hope. We thought there was defeat in death, but now we actually find there was ultimate victory. He is risen. And then the eleven disciples do not believe them. They give a reaction and a response of unbelief. Now, a lot of us are familiar with the story of doubting Thomas, but he gets a bad rap because each and every one of the disciples, when they initially heard the news of the resurrection, did not believe. Thomas was in line with all the rest of them. They all needed to see Jesus in order to believe. Now, certainly their, their grief at the death of Jesus contributed to their refusal to believe. It says that when the women came and give them this report of what they had seen and been told by the angels, that the disciples found it to be idle talk, which in the Greek could also mean nonsense or futility. And that word futility really strikes a chord with me because if we think about their grief in that moment, you can imagine them saying, why even bother? I mean, they had thrown their lives in, their lot in with Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed that, that he was going to come into his kingdom and that they would inherit with him some level of authority and power. And they were going to, to be victorious with Jesus. And now all of that has been seemingly taken away from them. So, of course, someone talks about Jesus being alive and it seems futile. Why even bother? After so many years of following Jesus has come to nothing. And so they did not believe, or we could translate that, they refused to believe. They chose not to. Hope can hurt a wounded heart. This seems too good to be true. They reacted with unbelief. It was not until later that Jesus appeared to his disciples in his resurrected body where they would fully understand and fully believe. But their initial reaction was, no, no, no. That can't be true. That's too good to be true. I don't believe. And they could see and then believe, but none of us today have that luxury. I want to go back to John 20, that story of Jesus and Thomas. And Thomas says, I will not believe until I can see him. And then Jesus appears before Thomas and offers him to touch the scars in his hands and the scar in his side. And then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him in John 20, 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that blessing is offered to all of us today. We have not seen the physical resurrected Jesus, and yet we gather here together and proclaim in hope and in faith that we do believe he is risen. It takes faith to believe what you cannot see, which is why so many people respond to the resurrected Christ with a response of unbelief. And at the core, I believe these reasons are very similar to the disciples. I need to see it to believe it. When I was a brand new youth pastor, uh, my first senior pastor loved to golf. So he wanted to bond with me a bit. He says, Andrew, uh, we're going to go golfing on Saturday. So uh, I'll swing by your house at 8.30 a.m. and uh, bring your golf clubs. And I looked at him and said, 
I don't own any golf clubs. And he looked at me like I had grown a third eye or something. He's like, what do you mean? You're a pastor and you don't own golf clubs. And I said, no, I hate golf. That was not the right thing to say. He was quite passionate about it. It's quite simple. The reason I hate golf is because I'm terrible at it. And so why would I want to spend that much time and money doing something I'm bad at? Right? I would rather do something else. And so, no, he, he found clubs for me to borrow. Great. And we went golfing. But he golfed all the time. And one afternoon, he bursts into the office, and he can't wait to tell the staff that he had a hole in one. I was like, that's awesome, Henry. Who were you golfing with? He said, no one. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. So you're telling me that on your own, you had a hole in one, <laughs> and no one else was around to witness this, right? Hey, if, if I need to see it to believe it. If no one was there, then I'm going to have a healthy skepticism of whether it actually happened. This is human nature. We need to see it to believe it. And while we don't have the privilege of touching the resurrected Jesus, we have plenty of evidence all around us that Jesus is alive. And where do we find it? We find it in our lives. We find it in the stories of those around us. I could tell you in my life the ways in which I truly believe that the God who is alive has been with me in the darkest times and has led me in a path that he wanted me to go. But what means so much to me is, is, is how I see this working out in the friends and family I have around me, especially my parents and my parents-in-law, in which I see this steadfast faith of following the risen Jesus and how it has truly blessed their life, not just in their perseverance, but in how it has been a good way of going about things. I see so much evidence of Jesus at work throughout the, all the things that have come their way. I love to hear the testimonies of people who were made brand new, who have these kind of rock-bottom experiences, especially if you've ever heard a testimony or hosted Teen Challenge, and there's these, these men that come forward, and their life was, was, was completely broken, and it was in Christ alone, the living Christ, in which they can say, I have been made new. And then I look at a world who does not have Jesus, and I see brokenness run rampant. And they see hearts hurting and yearning for something that they cannot find. And all of this to me is evidence that Jesus is alive. We have good reason to believe. He is risen and our lives show that truth to the world around us. There are many other factors that lead to a reaction of unbelief as we continue to understand more and more, make these scientific discoveries. It has led to some extreme skepticism of anything that might be miraculous. Miracles can't exist. That can't be a thing. We can explain everything through science. Now, I love science. I think understanding more about this creation is a wonderful endeavor. But does that mean we dismiss all the miracles? That has been the conclusion that some people draw. There's also an increased lack of trust in the Bible and its, its um, trustworthiness that has led to a dismissal of the resurrection story. Sure, you can point to me the stories about Jesus rising from the dead, but Um, it's clear that the disciples just stole the body and then they were the ones that wrote the stories that claimed something convenient to them. This is just self-fulfilling prophecy. That leads to a reaction of unbelief. And unfortunately, hypocrisy in the church leads to a dismissal of claims about Jesus. For all those same reasons that I believe our lives can show the evidence of a risen Christ, if those things are absent, then it takes away that evidence for the watching world around us. Divorce rates seem to be the same in the church. I see a lot of the same political uh, attentions and disunity in the church. So you're telling me that, that the risen Christ makes a difference? I don't see any difference at all. All of these are factors that lead to unbelief. 
But in all cases, we don't argue people into the kingdom of God. We don't rationalize with them saying Jesus is alive. We can't say, well, I believe miracles are possible because of this. We don't say, well, the Bible is trustworthy because of these reasons, even though these reasons exist. And we don't say, ignore the brokenness still in the church. What we do is we remember that the best argument that Jesus is alive is how we live our lives with his love and his life at work in us. That is the evidence that the world needs when they have a reaction of unbelief. While the disciples as a group choose not to believe, at least initially, Peter is curious. He is so curious, in fact, that he runs to the tomb to see if what the women said was true. And when he gets there, he finds that everything was as they claimed. The stone was rolled away, the body of Christ was gone, and only the linen cloths remained. That was very common practice. If they were to bury a body in that time, they would wrap the linen cloths around the body and then again embalm it with spices, and they would lay that in the tomb. And the fact that the body was gone but the cloths remained was a big piece, a vital piece of evidence for that initial reaction of belief for the disciples. Peter's response was not one of confusion or even now of unbelief. In verse 12, we read that he went home marveling at what had happened. To marvel is to be astonished, to be in wonder. Peter shows us the reaction of wonder. While complete belief and understanding likely came later for him when Jesus appeared and when, again, the truth of what he had said previously was made known to him or confirmed in him, there is certainly an element of belief at play even here, even now. Peter knows something big has happened. Something miraculous has happened. Something has happened that changes everything. So I can imagine Peter coming to the tomb out of breath, armed with this knowledge of what the women had said had happened, armed with the knowledge of what Jesus had said before, armed with this love for his Savior and his Lord. And then he looks into the tomb and he sees the stone rolled away and he sees the linen cloths lying there and he sees Jesus is gone, and I imagine him going, wow, wow. This is marveling and wonder. And church, dare we have such a response to a story as familiar as the resurrection? Because if you are someone who has grown up in the church, you have heard it over and over And I was just chatting with Pastor Earl the other week about how it's a unique challenge as a pastor to take these stories like the Christmas story and the Easter story, and it's so familiar. We we rehash it every year, and how do we make it fresh? How do we make it exciting? How do we make it new again without changing that focus? Because there's a reason we go over it every year. How do we not lose our awe and our wonder? Because familiarity can take away our sense of wonder. When I was living in uh, Dallas, Texas, I became a basketball fan of the Dallas Mavericks. And yep, they lost their first game of the playoffs yesterday, but they're going to be fine. I truly believe it. Name it, claim it, okay? And, uh, and uh, one of the reasons I became a fan is because a gentleman named Mark Cuban bought the team when I was down there. If you watch Shark Tank, Mark Cuban is often on Shark Tank. And he wanted uh, to, to buy this team, and they were a moribund franchise. They were terrible when he bought them. And he wanted to breathe energy back into the arena. So he said, if any fans would go and paint themselves and yell and scream for the whole game, I will give you tickets for free. And I was in high school, and me and my friend said, yep, we can do that. 
So we got together and we had supper and then we painted ourselves and we spelled out Go Mavericks! Exclamation point because that's how many people we had with us. So I wasn't the exclamation point, but that would have been fun. And so then we go there to this location they had ahead of time and we, we, we went crazy proving to them that we were at least unhinged enough to get these free tickets. And so I said, here you go. Have these seats for free. And it was fantastic. And lots of people looked at us funny. And I know that's not the image of me you wanted this morning, right? But this is what we did. And we yelled and we screamed and we enjoyed the game. And then halfway through, we got on the Jumbotron. I was like, oh, look, we're on the Jumbotron. Ah! And going crazy, going nuts. And it was so exciting. And, you know, he kept, that, he kept that going for quite a few years. And so I went probably three other times. And wouldn't you know, every single time I would paint myself and yell and scream, I would get on the Jumbotron. So the last time I ever did this was not with my Texas friends, but we're with some friends from Prov. We went down on a road trip, and then they got that experience. And then we paint ourselves, and we yell and scream, and then all of a sudden, look, we're on the Jumbotron. They're like, hey, Andrew, look, we're on the big screen. And you know what I said? Big deal. <laughs> yeah, you paint yourself, you get on the big screen. At this point, frankly, I'm kind of embarrassed about it. But they were in wonder, and it had become familiar to me. What happens when that is true of the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Church, have we lost our wonder for the resurrection of Jesus? Because make no mistake, there is no other story in the world that is more capable of making us go, wow. (laughs) We should marvel that God himself would become flesh and endure the human experience. We should marvel that Jesus would be willing to suffer and die in our place. We should marvel that on the third day, the Spirit of God breathed new life into a body that was stone cold dead. And we should marvel that the resurrected Jesus would choose to share this victory over death and his eternal inheritance with us so that we too may live forever. Everything about this should make us go, wow. So today, How you react to the story, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is incredibly important. Does it cause you confusion? Does it lead you to unbelief? Or does it make you shake your head in awe and wonder? And whatever your natural reaction is today, wherever you find yourself in your faith journey, you all have the opportunity to believe in the resurrected Christ and the hope that it brings. Faith in the fact that Jesus is alive matters more than faith in anything else. And as the worship team comes forward and gets ready for our final song, I want to draw us to 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul declares just how important it is that Jesus is alive. I'll read for you from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 22. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Wow. Let's pray. God, I pray that if we are confused about the truth of your Son, you would bring us clarity. That if we are skeptical or resistant to the truth of your Son, that you would lead us into faith and trust. And I pray that if we have grown cold to this idea that we have life in you and that you are alive. God, please give us back our awe and our wonder. Father, we are different and we are alive forever because of your Son. And we say thank you for that. Amen. I'll ask for your help as we declare this truth one more time. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Live like that is true. Have a great week.